0: dinner in an hour we stay with her and she turns slowly to face the camera dissolved to the visual precis of what happened on the tower culminating in the fall of the body she prepares to pack her bags then writes scotty a letter whose text we hear in voiceover she confesses what happened quote you were the victim i was the tool loving him she has longed for this meeting and also dreaded it because of the need if she is to get to know him afresh, to keep lying, the dangers of which she now can't face. It can be inferred that like the ghost of Hardy's wife in his famous string of poems, she herself has been revisiting the dead scenes and that it is no accident that she has paused in front of one of those scenes, the flower shop, with the posy in its window to display her right profile quote, innocently, end quote, to the observing Scotty, just as she did in her earlier persona at Ernie's, at the flower shop and in the mission garden. Well, you can see how much attention to detail and how close his reading is of the framing, the style, etc. So that is Charles Barr in his BFI book on Vertigo. Well, that's it for Film at Eleven this week, and we'll be back next time with more here on KBOO, Portland Community Radio KBOO. So until this then, this is KBOO take Portland.
1: Help KBU reach our
2: GiveGuide fundraising goal and get a chance to win a Portland Trailblazers fan package courtesy of GiveGuide. This offer is only available if you donate today, December 17th. To donate, and for more information about the Portland Trailblazers fan package, visit our
3: website at kbu.fm slash give. Hi, I'm Brian DeShazer, director of the Pacifica Radio Archives, and welcome to From the Vault, our weekly series that takes our history out of the vault and onto the radio. On August 6, 1945, the United States dropped an atomic bomb on the civilian population of Hiroshima, Japan, marking the dawn of the nuclear age. Today we remember the victims of the Hiroshima attack by presenting the Pacifica Radio Archive's original production of John Hersey's Hiroshima, featuring readings by Tyne Daly, Ruby Dee, Roscoe Lee Brown, and many others. But first we begin with an excerpt of a speech by the late Howard Zinn from November 11, 2009 on American holy wars. In this talk, Zinn scours the American war record in search of a good war or justifiable war. Here, Zinn turns to World War II, often thought of as the good war. World War II, the
4: good war, the best, Uh, fascism, I mean that's why I enlisted in the Air Force fight against fascism it's a good war it's a just war uh, what could be you know more obvious they are evil we are good and so i became a bombardier in the air force i dropped bombs on germany on hungary on czechoslovakia even on a little town in france 3 weeks before the war was to end when everybody knew the war was to end and we we didn't need to drop any more bombs but we dropped bombs on a little town in France we were trying out napalm the first use of napalm in the European theater I think by now you all know what napalm is one of one of the ugliest little weapons but uh, we were trying trying it out and adding metals and who knows what reason what complex of reasons led us to bomb a little town in France a Three when everybody knew the war was ending? And yes, there were German soldiers there uh, hanging around. They weren't doing anything, weren't bothering anybody, but they're there and gives us a good excuse to bomb. We'll kill the Germans. We'll kill some Frenchmen, too. What does it matter? Uh, it's a good war. We're the good guys. One thing... And I didn't think about any of this while I was bombing. I didn't examine. Oh, who are we bombing? And why are we bombing? And what's going on here? And who is dying? On, I didn't know who was dying because when you bomb from thirty thousand feet, well, this is modern warfare. You do things at a distance. It's very impersonal. You just put, press a button. And, you know, you do, and somebody dies, but you don't see them. So I drop bombs from thirty thousand feet. I didn't. I didn't see any human beings. I didn't see what's happening below. I didn't hear children screaming. I didn't see arms being ripped off people. No. Just drop bombs. You see little flashes of light down below as the bombs hit. That's it. And you don't think. It's hard to think when you're in the military. Really, it's hard to sit back and examine, ask what you're doing. No, you've been trained to do a job, and you do your job. So I didn't think about any of this until after the war, when I began to think about that raid on France. And then I began to think about the the raid on Dresden, where 100,000 people were killed in one night, day of bombing. Read Kurt Vonnegut's book, Slaughterhouse Five. He was there, he was a prisoner of war. And there in the basement in a kind of meat locker <laughs> slaughterhouse. Um, uh, and then I became aware of the, the other bombings that had taken place. But you know, when you're in a war, you, you, you don't see the big picture and you don't, you really don't, I, I didn't know until afterward, 600,000 German civilians were killed by our bombing. They weren't Nazis. <laughs> Well, sh- yeah, you might say they were passive supporters in that they didn't rebel. Well, a few rebelled, but... Well, how many uh, Americans rebel against American wars? Uh, are we all complicit for what we did in Vietnam, killing several million people? Well, maybe we are, but... There was a c- kind of stupid, ignorant innocence about us, <laughs> and the same thing as true of the Germans, and we killed 600,000... If some great power, while we were dropping bombs in Vietnam, had come over here and dropped bombs on American cities to, in retaliation, it would have been. And they say, "Well, these are imperialists. <laughs> we'll kill them all." Well, no, the American people were not themselves imperialists, but they were passive, you know, bystanders until they woke up. Yeah, but. Uh, so I began to think about this. I began to think about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I, I had welcomed the bombing of Hiroshima when it took place, because I didn't know. I didn't know uh, what it really meant. We had finished our bombing missions in Europe. We had won the war in Europe, and my crew and I, we flew our plane, the same plane we'd flown missions on. We flew that same plane back across the Atlantic, and we were given a 30-day furlough, and then the idea is we are going to go on to the Pacific because the war against Japan was still going on. And during this 30-day furlough uh, in early August, uh, my wife and I decided we'd been married just before I went overseas. My wife and I decided we'd take a little vacation in the country, we, and we uh, took a bus to go into the country at the bus stop uh there was a newsstand and there was a newspaper and a big headline, atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. Oh, great. Didn't really know what an atomic bomb was, but it was sort of obvious from the headline and so on, it was a big bomb. Well, I had dropped bombs. This was just a bigger bomb. But I had no idea what what it meant until I read John Hersey's book on Hiroshima. John Hersey had gone into Hiroshima after the bombing, and he had talked to survivors. Survivors? You can imagine what those survivors looked like. They were kids and old people and women and all sorts of Japanese people, and they were without arms or legs, or they were blinded, or their skin could not be looked at. John Hersey interviewed them and got some idea and reported, he was a great journalist, he reported on what the bombing of Hiroshima was like to the people who were there, and when I read his account, for the first time, I understood, well, hey, this is what bombing does to human beings. This is what my bombs had done to people. And I, uh, I began to rethink the idea of a good war, of our war, war against fascism. Oh, well, it's, it's okay, because we did defeat Hitler. That's just it. Just like we did get independence from England, we did end slavery. But wait a while, a lot of other it, it's not that simple. And World War II is not that simple. Oh, we defeated Hitler, therefore everything is okay. We were the good guys, they were the bad guys. But what I realized then was that once you decide, and this is what we decided at the beginning of the war, this is what, you know, I decided, they were the bad guys, we were the good guys— what I didn't realize was that in the course of a war, the good guys become the bad guys. War poisons everybody. War corrupts everybody. And so the so called good guys became, begin behaving like the bad guys. The Nazis drop bombs and kill civilians in Coventry and London and Rotterdam, and we drop bombs and kill civilians, and we commit atrocities, and we We go over Tokyo several months before Hiroshima, and I'll bet you 90% of the American people do not know about the raid of Tokyo. Everybody has heard about Hiroshima. I'll bet 90% of the American people, I don't know if you have, know that several months before Hiroshima we sent planes over Tokyo to set Tokyo afire with firebombs, and 100,000 people died in one night of bombing in Tokyo. Altogether, we killed over half a million people in Japan, civilians. And some people said, well, they bombed Pearl Harbor. <laughs> That's really something. These people did not bomb Pearl Harbor. Those children did not bomb Pearl Harbor. But this notion of violent revenge and retaliation, uh, something we've got to get rid of. So I began, yeah, reconsidering all of that, rethinking all of that investigated the bombing of Hiroshima, investigated the excuse that was made, oh, we, you know, if we don't bomb Hiroshima, well, we have to invade Japan and a million people will die. And I investigated all of that, found it was all nonsense. You know, we didn't have to invade Japan in order for Japan to surrender. Our own official investigative team, the Strategic Bombing Survey, which went into Japan right after the war, interviewed all the high Japanese military civilian officials and... And the conclusion was Japan was ready to end the war. Maybe not the next week, maybe in two months, maybe in three months. Oh, no, we can't wait. We don't want to wait. We've got these bombs. Uh, we've got to see what they look like. We've, do you know uh, how many people die because of experimentation with weapons? We we're experimenting. We we're experimenting on the children of Hiroshima. Let's see what this does. Hey, and also, let's show the Russians... Let's show the Russians we have this bomb. Uh, A British scientist who was an advisor to Churchill called the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima the first step of the Cold War. The Soviet Union was in the mind of people around Harry Truman, James and Burns, and Forrestal, and others. So yes, I began thinking about the Good War and how it corrupts and poisons and then I looked at the world after the war. Oh, yeah, what are the results? You know, I, I said bad things about the war, I'm sorry, all those casualties. But, but it ended, it stopped fascism. Oh, wait a while, let's look closely at that. Yeah, it got rid of Hitler, got rid of Mussolini. Did it get rid of fascism in the world? Did it get rid of racism in the world? Did he get rid of militarism in the world? No, you had two superpowers now arming themselves with nuclear weapons, enough nuclear weapons that if they were used, they would make Hitler's Holocaust look puny. And there were times, in fact, in the decades that followed, when we became very, very close to using those nuclear weapons. So the world, after World War II, and it's so important You don't just look at, oh, we won. No, what happens after that? What happens five years after that? What happens ten years after that? What happens to the G.I.s who came back alive five or ten years later? And maybe one of them will go berserk at Fort Hood. Think about that. Think about all the superficial comments made. oh Let's examine this guy psychologically as a religious, and let's not... Let's not go deeper into that and say these are war casualties. Those people he killed were war casualties. He was a war casualty. That's what war does. War poisons people's minds. So we got rid of Hitler. But what was the world like? When I was discharged from the Army, from the Air Force, I got a letter from General Marshall. He was a general of generals. He was sending a letter, uh, not a personal letter to me, (laughs) Uh, Dear Howie (laughs) No (laughs) (laughs) The letter that was sent to 16 million men Who had served in the armed forces Some women too (laughs) Uh, And uh, the letter was Something like this We've won the war Congratulations For your service It will be a new world it wasn't a new world. And we know it hasn't been a new world since World War II. War after war after war after war. And 50 million people were dead in that war to end all wars. To end fascism and dictatorship and militarism. No. So, yes, I came to a conclusion that war cannot be tolerated. No matter what we're told and if we think that there are good wars, and therefore, well, maybe this is a good war, I wanted to examine the so-called good wars, the holy wars, and, uh, yeah, and take a good look at them, and think again about the phenomenon of war, and come to the conclusion, yes, war cannot be tolerated. No matter what we're told, no matter what tyrant exists, what border has been crossed, what aggression has taken place. It's not that we're going, to be, we're going to be passive in the face of tyranny or, or aggression. No. But we'll find ways other than war to deal with whatever problems we have. Because war is inevitably, inevitably, the indiscriminate, massive killing of huge numbers of people. And children are a good part of those people. Every war is a war against children. Ah. Uh. So it's not just getting rid of (laughs) Saddam Hussein. Think about it. Well, we got rid of Saddam Hussein, and of course we killed huge numbers of people who had been victims of Saddam Hussein. When you fight a war against a tyrant, who do you kill? You kill the victims of the tyrant. Anyway, all this, all this was simply to make us think again about war and, and to think you know, we, we're at war now, <laughs> right? In Iraq, in Afghanistan, and sort of in Pakistan, since we're sending rockets over there and killing innocent people in Pakistan. And uh, so we should not accept that. Uh, we should look for, an, look for a, a peace movement to join. Really, look for some peace organization to join. It will look small at first and pitiful and helpless, but that's how movements start. That's how the movement against the Vietnam War started, started with handfuls of people who thought they were helpless, thought they were powerless. But remember this, the power of the people on top depends on the obedience of the people below. When people stop obeying, they have no power. When workers go on strike, huge corporations lose their power. When consumers boycott, huge business establishments uh, have to give in. When soldiers refuse to fight, as so many soldiers did in Vietnam, so many deserters, so many fraggings, acts of violence by enlisted men against officers in Vietnam, B-52 pilots refusing to fly bombing missions anymore. War can't go on when enough soldiers refuse uh, the government has has to decide we can't continue so yes uh, people have the power if they begin to organize if they protest if they create a strong enough movement uh, they can change things that's all I want to say thank you
3: Howard Zinn, speaking at Boston University on November 11, 2009, on the subject of American Holy Wars. You are listening to From the Vault, the original weekly series produced by the Pacifica Radio Archives. For a copy of this program or to browse the other programs in this series, go to fromthevaultradio.org or call us in the archives at 1-800-735-0230. And now we present the Pacifica Radio Archives' original production of John Hersey's Hiroshima, written in 1946 and adapted for radio by John Valentine in 2003 as a collaboration with the Pacifica Archives staff. Here is my original 2003 introduction to the program. Hi, this is Brian DeShazer, director of the Pacifica Radio Archives. In commemoration of the 58th anniversary of the bombing of the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we present in association with Artists United and the Feminist Majority, a radio adaptation of Hiroshima by John Hersey. Originally published in the New Yorker on August 31st, 1946, Hiroshima documented the destruction of Japan through the eyewitness accounts of six survivors and stands today as a journalistic masterpiece. And now it is my pleasure to present Tyne Daly, Ruby D., and Roscoe Lee Brown in Hiroshima.
5: Hiroshima by John Hersey. Chapter 1 A Noiseless Flash. At exactly 15 minutes past eight in the morning, On August 6, 1945, Japanese time, at the moment when the atomic bomb flashed over Hiroshima.
6: Miss Toshiko Sasaki, a clerk in the personnel department of the East Asia Tin Works, had just sat down at her place in the plant office and was turning her head to speak to the girl at the next desk.
7: At that same moment, Dr. Masakazu Fuji was settling down cross-legged to read the Osaka Asabi, on the porch of his private hospital, overhanging one of the seven Deltaic rivers which divide Hiroshima.
1: Mrs. Hatsuyo Nakamura, a tailor's widow, stood by the window of her kitchen, watching a neighbor tearing down his house because it lay in the path of an air raid defense fire lane.
8: Father Wilhelm Kleinsorge, a German priest of the Society of Jesus, reclined in his underwear on a cot on the top floor of his order's three-story mission house, reading a jesuit magazine Stimmen der Zeit
9: Dr. Terufumi Sasaki a young member of the surgical staff of the city's large modern Red Cross Hospital walked along one of the hospital corridors with a blood specimen for a Wasserman test in his hand The Reverend Mr. Kiyoshi Tanimoto
2: of the Hiroshima Methodist Church paused at the door of a rich man's house in Koi the city's western suburb and prepared to unload a handcart full of things, he had evacuated from the town in fear of the massive B-29 raid
5: which everyone expected Hiroshima to suffer. A hundred thousand people were killed by the atomic bomb and these six were among the survivors. They still wonder why they lived when so many others died. Each of them counts many small items of chance or volition. A step taken in time, a decision to go indoors, catching one streetcar instead of the next, that spared him. And now each knows that in the act of survival, he lived a dozen lives and saw more death than he ever thought he would see. At the time, none of them knew anything.
2: The Reverend Mr. Tanemoto got up at five o'clock that morning. He was alone in the parsonage because for some time his wife had been commuting with their year old baby to spend nights with a friend in Ushida, a suburb to the north. Of all the important cities of Japan only two, Kyoto and Hiroshima, had not been visited in strength by B-san or Mr. B, as the Japanese, with a mixture of respect and unhappy familiarity, called the B-29. And Mr. Tanemoto, like all his neighbors and friends, was almost sick with anxiety. He was sure Hiroshima's turn would come soon. He had slept badly the night before because there had been several air raid warnings. Hiroshima had been getting such warnings almost every night for weeks. For at that time, the B-29s were using Lake Biwa, northeast of Hiroshima, as a rendezvous point. And no matter what city the Americans planned to hit, the super fortresses streamed in over the coast near Hiroshima. The frequency of the warnings and the continued abstinence of Mr. B with respect to Hiroshima had made its citizens jittery. A rumor was going around that the Americans were saving something special for the city. Mr. Tanamoto was a small man, quick to talk, laugh, and cry. He wore his black hair parted in the middle and rather long. The prominence of the frontal bones just above his eyebrows and the smallness of his mustache, mouth, and chin gave him a strange old young look, boyish and yet wise, weak and yet fiery. He moved nervously and fast, but with a restraint which suggested that he was a cautious, thoughtful man. He showed, indeed, just those qualities in the uneasy days before the bomb fell. Besides having his wife spend the nights in Ushida, Mr. Tanemoto had been carrying all the portable things from his church in the close-packed residential district called Nagaragawa to a house that belonged to a rayon manufacturer in Koi, two miles from the center of town. The rayon man, a Mr. Matsui, had opened his then unoccupied estate to a large number of his friends and acquaintances so that they might evacuate whatever they wished to a safe distance from the probable target area. Mr. Tanemoto had had no difficulty in moving chairs, hymnals, bibles, altar gear, and church records by Pushcart himself, but the organ console and an upright piano required some aid. A friend of his named Matsuo had the day before helped him get the piano out to Koi. In return, he had promised this day to assist Mr. Matsuo in hauling out a daughter's belongings. That is why he had risen so early. Mr. Tanimoto cooked his own breakfast. He felt awfully tired. There was another thing, too. Mr. Tanimoto had studied theology at Emory College in Atlanta, Georgia. He had graduated in 1940. He spoke excellent English. He dressed in American clothes. He had corresponded with many American friends right up to the time the war began. He found himself growing increasingly uneasy. The police had questioned him several times, and just a few days before, he had heard that an influential acquaintance, a Mr. Tanaka, a man famous in Hiroshima for his showy philanthropies and notorious for his personal tyrannies, had been telling people that Tanimoto should not be trusted. Before six o'clock that morning, Mr. Tanemoto started for Mr. Matsuo's house. There he found that their burden was to be a tansu, a large Japanese cabinet full of clothing and household goods. The two men set out. A few minutes after they started, the air raid siren went off. A minute long blast that warned of approaching planes but indicated to the people of Hiroshima only a slight degree of danger since it sounded every morning at this time when an American weather plane came over. As they started up a valley away from the tight-ranked houses, the all-clear sounded. The Japanese radar operators, detecting only three planes, supposed that they had comprised a reconnaissance. Pushing the handcart up to the rayon man's house was tiring, and the men, after they had maneuvered their load into the driveway and to the front steps, pause to rest a while the house consisted of a wooden frame and wooden walls supporting a heavy tile roof its front hall packed with rolls of bedding and clothing looked like a cool cave full of fat cushions there was no sound of planes the morning
7: was still the place was cool and pleasant
2: Then a tremendous flash of light cut across the sky. Mr. Tanemoto had a distinct recollection that it traveled from east to west from the city toward the hills. It seemed a sheet of sun. Both he and Mr. Matsuo reacted in terror, and both had time to react, for they were three thousand five hundred yards, or two miles, from the center of the explosion. Mr. Matsuo dashed up the front steps into the house and dived among the bedrolls and buried himself there. Mr. Tanemoto took four or five steps and threw himself between two big rocks in the garden. He bellied up very hard against one of them. As his face was against the stone, he did not see what happened. He felt a sudden pressure, and then splinters and pieces of board and fragments of tile fell on him. He heard no roar. Almost no one in Hiroshima recalls hearing any noise of the bomb. And when he dared, Mr. Tanemoto raised his head and saw that the rayon man's house had collapsed. He thought a bomb had fallen directly on it. Such clouds of dust had risen that there was a sort of twilight around. In panic, not thinking for the moment of Mr. Matsuo under the ruins, He dashed out into the street. He noticed as he ran that the concrete wall of the estate had fallen over, toward the house rather than away from it. In the street, the first thing he saw was a squad of soldiers who had been burrowing into the hillside opposite, making one of the thousands of dugouts in which the Japanese apparently intended to resist invasion, hill by hill, life for life the soldiers were coming out of the hole where they should have been safe, and blood was running from their heads, chests, and backs. They were silent and dazed under what seemed to be a local dust cloud. The day drew darker and
1: darker. At nearly midnight, the night before the bomb was dropped, An announcer on the city's radio station said that about 200 B-29s were approaching southern Honshu and advised the population of Hiroshima to evacuate to their designated safe areas. Mrs. Hatsuyo Nakamura, the tailor's widow, who lived in the section called Noboricho and who had long had a habit of doing as she was told, got her three children, a 10-year-old boy, Toshio, an 8-year-old girl, Baeko, and a 5-year-old girl, Maeko, out of bed and dressed them and walked with them to the military area known as the East Parade Ground on the northeast edge of the city there she unrolled some mats and the children lay down on them they slept until about 2 when they were awakened by the roar of the planes going over hiroshima as soon as the planes had passed mrs nakamura started back with her children they reached home a little after 2:30 and she immediately turned on the radio which to her distress was just then broadcasting a fresh warning. When she looked at the children and saw how tired they were, and when she thought of the number of trips they had made in the past weeks, all to no purpose, to the East Parade Ground, she decided, in spite of the instructions on the radio, she simply could not face starting all over again. She put the children in their bedrolls on the floor, lay down herself at three o'clock, and fell asleep at once, so soundly, That when the planes passed over later she did not wake to their sounds. The siren jarred her awake at about seven. She arose, dressed quickly, and hurried to the house of Mr. Nakamoto, the head of her neighborhood association, and asked him what she should do. He said that she should remain at home until an urgent warning. A series of intermittent blasts of the siren was sounded. She returned home lit the stove in the kitchen, set some rice to cook, and sat down to read that morning's Hiroshima, Chugoku. To her relief, the all-clear sounded at eight o'clock. She heard the children stirring, and so she went and gave each of them a handful of peanuts and told them to stay on their bedrolls. She had hoped that they would go back to sleep, but the man in the house directly to the south began to make a terrible hullabaloo of hammering, wedging, ripping, and splitting. The prefectural government had begun to press with threats and warnings for the completion of wide fire lanes, and the neighbor was reluctantly sacrificing his home to the city's safety. Mrs. Nakamura went back to the kitchen, looked at the rice, and began watching the man next door. At first she was annoyed with him for making so much noise, but then she was moved almost to tears by pity. Her emotion was specifically directed toward her neighbor, tearing down his home, board by board, at a time when there was so much unavoidable destruction, but undoubtedly she also felt a generalized community pity, to say nothing of self-pity. Her husband, Isawa, had gone into the army just after Maeko was born, and she had heard nothing from or of him for a long time, until on March 5, 1942, she received a seven-word telegram.
6: Isawa died an honorable death at Singapore.
1: Isawa had not been a particularly prosperous tailor, and his only capital was a Sankuko sewing machine. After his death, when his allotment stopped coming, Mrs. Nakamura got out the machine and began to take in piecework herself, and since then had supported the children, but poorly, by sewing. As Mrs. Nakamura stood watching her neighbor everything flashed whiter than any white she had ever seen. She did not notice what happened to the man next door. The reflex of a mother set her in motion toward her children. She had taken a single step. The house was one thousand three hundred fifty yards or three quarters of a mile from the center of the explosion. When something picked her up and she seemed to fly into the next room over the raised sleeping platform pursued by parts of her house timbers fell around her as she landed and a shower of tiles pummeled her everything became dark for she was buried the debris did not cover her deeply she rose up and freed herself she heard a child cry mother help me and saw her youngest Mayeko the five-year-old buried up to her breast and unable to move as Mrs. Nakamura started frantically to claw her way toward the baby she could see or hear nothing of her other children
7: In the days right before the bombing Dr. Masakazu Fuji being prosperous hedonistic and at the time not too busy had been allowing himself the luxury of sleeping until 9 or 9:30 but fortunately he had to get up early the morning the bomb was dropped to see a house guest off on a train He rose at six, and half an hour later walked with his friend to the station. He was back home by seven, just as a siren sounded its sustained warning. He ate breakfast, and then, because the morning was already hot, undressed down to his underwear and went out on the porch to read the paper. Dr. Fuji was the proprietor of a peculiarly Japanese institution, a private, single-doctor hospital. This building, perched beside and over the water of the Kyo River, and next to the bridge of the same name, contained 30 rooms for 30 patients and their kinfolk. For, according to Japanese custom, when a person falls sick and goes to a hospital, one or more members of his family go and live there with him, to cook for him, bathe, massage, and read to him, and to offer incessant familial sympathy without which, a Japanese patient would be miserable indeed. The structure rested two-thirds on the land, one-third on piles over the tidal waters of the Kyo. This was the part of the building where Dr. Fuji lived. Dr. Fuji had been relatively idle for about a month. As Hiroshima seemed more and more inevitably a target, he began turning patients away. On the ground, that in case of a fire raid, he would not be able to evacuate them. Now, he had only two patients left. Dr. Fuji had six nurses to tend his patients. His wife and children were safe. His wife and one son were living outside Osaka, and another son and two daughters were in the country on Kyushu. He had little to do and did not mind, for he had saved some money. At 50, he was healthy, convivial, and calm and he was pleased to pass the evenings drinking whiskey with friends, always sensibly and for the sake of conversation. Before the war, he had affected brands imported from Scotland and America. Now, he was perfectly satisfied with the best Japanese brand, Suntory. Dr. Fuji sat down cross-legged in his underwear on the spotless matting of the porch, put on his glasses and started reading the Osaka Asabi. He liked to read the Osaka news because his wife was there. He saw the flash. To him, faced away from the center and looking at his paper, it seemed a brilliant yellow. Startled, he began to rise to his feet. In that moment, he was 1,551 yards from the center. The hospital leaned behind his rising and with a terrible ripping noise toppled into the river. The doctor, still in the act of getting to his feet, was thrown forward and around and over. He was buffeted and gripped. He lost track of everything because things were so speeded up. He felt the water. Dr. Fuji hardly had time to think that he was dying before he realized that he was alive. "'squeezed tightly by two long timbers in a V across his chest, "'like a morsel suspended between two huge chopsticks, "'held upright so that he could not move, "'with his head miraculously above water "'and his torso and legs in it. "'The remains of his hospital were all around him "'in a mad assortment of splintered lumber "'and materials for relief of pain.' His left shoulder hurt terribly. His glasses were gone.
8: Father Wilhelm kleinsorge of the Society of Jesus was, on the morning of the explosion, in rather frail condition. The Japanese wartime diet had not sustained him, and he felt the strain of being a foreigner in an increasingly xenophobic Japan. Even a German, since the defeat of the fatherland, was unpopular. He was tired all the time. To make matters worse, he had suffered for two days, along with Father Cheslick, a fellow priest, from a rather painful and urgent diarrhea, which they blamed on the beans and black ration bread they were obliged to eat. Two other priests, then living in the mission compound, which was in the Nobori Cho section, Father Superior LaSalle and Father Schiffer, had happily escaped this affliction. Father Klein-Sorga woke up about six the morning the bomb was dropped, and half an hour later, he was a bit tardy because of his sickness. He began to read Mass in the Mission Chapel, a small Japanese-style wooden building which was without pews, since its worshippers knelt on the usual Japanese matted floor, facing an altar graced with splendid silks, brass, silver, and heavy embroideries. After Mass, while Father klein was reading the prayers of Thanksgiving, the sirens sounded. He stopped the service, and the missionaries retired across the compound to the bigger building after an alarm. Father Kleinsorga always went out and scanned the sky in this instance, when he stepped outside, he was glad to see only the single weather plane that flew over Hiroshima each day about this time. Satisfied that nothing would happen, he went in and breakfasted with the other fathers at eight. They heard the all clear. They went then to various parts of the building. Father Kleinsorga went up to a room on the third floor, "'took off all his clothes except his underwear, "'and stretched out on his right side on a cot, "'and began reading his Stimmen der Zeit. "'After the terrible flash, "'which Father klein later realized, "'reminded him of something he had read as a boy "'about a large meteor colliding with the earth. "'He had time, since he was 1,400 yards from the center, "'for one thought. "'A bomb has fallen directly on us. "'Then... For a few seconds or minutes, he went out of his mind. Father Kleinsorger never knew how he got out of the house. The next things he was conscious of were that he was wandering around in the mission's vegetable garden in his underwear, bleeding slightly from small cuts along his left flank. That all the buildings round about had fallen down except the jesuits mission house which had long before been braced and double braced by a priest named gropper who was terrified of earthquakes that the day had turned dark and that murata-san the housekeeper was nearby crying over
9: and
6: over our lord jesus have pity on us
9: on the train on the way into hiroshima from the country where he lived with his mother Dr. Terufumi Sasaki, the Red Cross Hospital Surgeon, thought over an unpleasant nightmare he had had the night before. His mother's home was 30 miles from the city, and it took him two hours by train and tram to reach the hospital. He had slept uneasily all night and had wakened an hour earlier than usual and, feeling sluggish and slightly feverish, had debated whether to go to the hospital at all. His sense of duty finally forced him to go, and he had started out on an earlier train than he took most mornings. He was only 25 years old and had just completed his training at the Eastern Medical University in Tsingtao, China. At the terminal, he caught a streetcar at once. He later calculated that if he had taken his customary train that morning and if had had to wait a few minutes for the streetcar, as often happened, he would have been close to the center at the time of the explosion and would surely have perished. He arrived at the hospital at 7.40 and reported to the chief surgeon. A few minutes later, he went to a room on the first floor and drew blood from the arm of a man in order to perform a Wasserman test. The laboratory containing the incubators for the test was on the third floor, with the blood specimen in his left hand, walking in a kind of distraction he had felt all morning, probably because of the dream and his restless night, he started along the main corridor on his way toward the stairs. He was one step beyond an open window when the light of the bomb was reflected like a gigantic photographic flash in the corridor. He ducked down on one knee and said to himself, as only a Japanese would, Sasaki Gambare, be brave. Just then, the building was 1,650 yards from the center. The blast ripped through the hospital. The glasses he was wearing flew off his face. The bottle of blood crashed against one wall. His Japanese sleepers zipped out from under his feet, but otherwise, thanks to where he stood, he was untouched. Dr. Sasaki shouted the name of the chief surgeon and rushed around to the men's office and found him terribly cut by glass. The hospital was in horrible confusion. Heavy partitions and ceilings had fallen on patients. Beds had overturned. Windows had blown in and cut people. Blood was spattered on the walls and the floors instruments were everywhere. Many of the patients were running about, screaming. Many more lay dead. A colleague working in the laboratory to which Dr. Sasaki had been walking was dead. Dr. Sasaki's patient, whom he had just left and who, a few minutes before, had been dreadfully afraid of syphilis, was also dead. Dr. Sasaki found himself the only doctor in the hospital who was unhurt. Dr. Sasaki, who believed that the enemy had hit only the building he was in, got bandages and began to bind the wounds of those inside the hospital, while outside, all over Hiroshima, maimed and dying citizens turned their unsteady steps toward the Red Cross Hospital to begin an invasion that was to make Dr. Sasaki forget his private nightmare for a long, long time.
6: Miss Toshiko Sasaki, the East Asia Tin Works clerk, who was not related to Dr. Sasaki, got up at 3 o'clock in the morning on the day the bomb fell. There was extra housework to do. Her 11-month-old brother, Akio, had come down the day before with a serious stomach upset. Her mother had taken him to the Tamura Pediatric Hospital and was staying there with him. Miss Sasaki, who was about 20, had to cook breakfast for her father, a brother, a sister, and herself, and, since the hospital, because of the war, was unable to provide food, to prepare a whole day's meals for her mother and the baby in time for her father, who worked in a factory making rubber earplugs for artillery crews, to take the food by on his way to the plant. When she had finished, it was nearly seven. The family lived in Koi, and she had a 45-minute trip to the tin works. She was in charge of the personnel records in the factory. She left Koi at seven, and as soon as she reached the plant, she went back to her office and sat down at her desk. (sighs) She was quite far from the windows, which were off to her left, and behind her were a couple of tall bookcases containing all the books of the factory library. She thought that she would chat for a moment with the girl at her right. Just as she turned her head away from the windows, the room was filled with a blinding light. She was paralyzed by fear. Fixed still in her chair for a long moment. The plant was 1,600 yards from the center. Everything fell. The ceiling dropped suddenly, and the wooden floor above collapsed in splinters, and the people up there came down, and the roof above them gave way. But principally and first of all, the bookcases right behind her swooped forward, and the contents threw her down, with her left leg horribly twisted and breaking underneath her. <laughs>
4: There, in the tin factory, in the first moment of the Atomic Age, a human being was crushed by books. Chapter
2: 2. The Fire. Immediately after the explosion, the Reverend Mr. Kiyoshi Tanimoto ran wildly out of the Matsui estate and looked in wonderment at the bloody soldiers at the mouth of the dugout they had been digging. He reflected that although the all-clear had sounded, and he had heard no planes, several bombs must have been dropped. He thought of a hilllock in the rayon man's garden from which he could get a view of the whole of Koi, and he ran back up to the estate from the mound. Mr. Tanimoto saw an astonishing panorama, not just a patch of koi as he had expected. But as much of Hiroshima as he could see through the clouded air was giving off a thick, dreadful miasma. Clumps of smoke, near and far, had begun to push up through the general dust. He wondered how such extensive damage could have been dealt out of a silent sky. Houses nearby were burning, and when huge drops of water the size of marbles began to fall, he half-thought that they must be coming from the hoses of firemen fighting the blazes. They were actually drops of condensed moisture falling from the turbulent tower of dust, heat, and fission fragments that had already risen miles into the sky above Hiroshima. Mr. Tanemoto thought of his wife and baby, his church, his home, his parishioners, all of them down in that awful murk. Once more, he began to run in fear toward the city.
1: Mrs. Hatsuyo Nakamura, the tailor's widow, having struggled up from under the ruins of her house after the explosion, and seeing Maeko, the youngest of her three children, buried breast deep and unable to move, crawled across the debris, hauled at timbers, and flung tiles aside in a hurried effort to free the child. Then, from what seemed to be caverns, far below, she heard two small voices crying. She called the names of her ten-year-old son and eight-year-old daughter, Toshio, Yaeko. The voices from below answered. Mrs. Nakamura abandoned Maeko, who at least could breathe, and in a frenzy made the wreckage fly above the crying voices. Toshio, the boy, apparently had some freedom to move because she could feel him undermining the pile of wood and tiles as she worked from above. At last she saw his head, and she hastily pulled him out by it. He said he had been blown right across the room and had been on top of his sister Yaiko under the wreckage. She now said from underneath that she could not move because there was something on her legs. With a bit more digging, Mrs. Nakamura cleared a hole above the child and began to pull her arm. It's dying! It hurts! Yayako cried. Mrs. Nakamura shouted, There's no time now to say whether it hurts or not, and yanked her whimpering daughter up. Then she freed Mayako. The children were filthy and bruised. But none of them had a single cut or scratch. Mrs. Nakamura took the children out into the street. The children were silent, except for the five-year-old, Maeko, who kept asking questions.
0: Why is it night already? Why did our house fall down? What happened?
1: Mrs. Nakamura saw through the darkness that all the houses in her neighborhood had collapsed. The house next door, which its owner had been tearing down to make way for a fire lane, was now very thoroughly, if crudely, torn down. Its owner who had been sacrificing his home for the community's safety, lay dead. Then she remembered her sewing machine. She went back in for it and dragged it out. Obviously, she could not carry it with her, so she unthinkingly plunged her symbol of livelihood into the receptacle which for weeks had been her symbol of safety, the cement tank of water in front of her house, of the type every household had been ordered to construct against a possible fire raid. A nervous neighbor, Mrs. Hataya, called to Mrs. Nakamura to run away with her to the woods in Asano Park, which had been designated as an evacuation area for their neighborhood. Mrs. Nakamura joined Mrs. Hataya and started out for Asano Park with her children. Under many ruins, as they hurried along, they heard muffled screams for help. The only building they saw standing was the Jesuit mission house. As they passed it, she saw Father Kleinsorge, in bloody underwear running out of the house with a small suitcase in his hand.
8: Right after the explosion, while Father Wilhelm Kleinsorga S. J. was wandering around in his underwear in the vegetable garden, Father Superior LaSalle came around the corner of the building in the darkness. His body, especially his back, was bloody. The flash had made him twist away from his window, and tiny pieces of glass had flown at him. Father Kleinsorga, still bewildered, managed to ask, Where are the rest? Just then the two other priests living in the mission house appeared. Father Cheslick unhurt, supporting Father Schiffer, who was covered with blood that spurted from a cut above his left ear, and who was very pale. A public bath next door to the mission house had caught fire, but since there the wind was southerly, the priests thought their house would be spared. Nevertheless, as a precaution, Father klein went inside to fetch some things he wanted to save. He found his room in a state of weird and illogical confusion. A first-aid kit was hanging undisturbed on a hook on the wall, but his clothes, which had been on other hooks nearby, were nowhere to be seen. His desk was in splinters all over the room, but a mere papier-mâché suitcase, which he had hidden under the desk, stood handle-side up, without a scratch on it, in the doorway of the room where he could not miss it. The suitcase contained his breviary, the account books for the whole diocese, and a considerable amount of paper money belonging to the mission, for which he was responsible. He ran out of the house and deposited the suitcase in the mission air raid shelter.
7: Dr. Masakazu Fujis' hospital was no longer on the bank of the Kyo River. It was in the river. After the overturn, "'Dr. Fuji was so stupefied "'and so tightly squeezed by the beams "'gripping his chest "'that he was unable to move at first, "'and he hung there about twenty minutes "'in the darkened morning. "'Then a thought which came to him "'that soon the tide would be running in "'through the estuaries "'and his head would be submerged "'inspired him to fearful activity. "'He wriggled and turned "'and exerted what strength he could, "'though his left arm because of the pain "'in his shoulder was useless. "'And before long, he had freed himself from the vise. After a few moments' rest, he climbed onto the pile of timbers, and finding a long one that slanted up to the riverbank, he painfully shinned up it. There had been no breeze early in the morning when Dr. Fuji had walked to the railway station to see his friend off, but now brisk winds were blowing every which way. Here on the bridge, the wind was easterly. New fires were leaping up, and they spread quickly, And In a very short time, terrible blasts of hot air and showers of cinders made it impossible to stand on the bridge anymore. Dr. Fuji went down into the water under the bridge where a score of people had already taken refuge. From there, Dr. Fuji saw a nurse hanging in the timbers of his hospital by her legs and then another painfully pinned across the breast. He enlisted help of some of the others under the bridge and freed both of them He then went back into the river and waited for the fire to subside.
4: Of 150 doctors in the city, 65 were already dead, and most of the rest were wounded. Of 1,780 nurses, 1,654 were dead or too badly hurt to work. In the biggest hospital, that of the Red Cross, only six doctors out of 30 were able to function and only 10 nurses out of more than 200.
3: been listening to Hiroshima by John Hersey, adapted for radio by John Valentine. In the cast, you heard Ruby Dee and John Valentine as the narrators, Tyne Daly as Mrs. Nakamura, Daniel Benzali as Father klein Roscoe Lee Brown as Dr. Fuji, Tony Plana as Mr. Tanemoto, Jeannie Sakata as Miss Sasaki, Michael Chinyamurundi as Dr. Sasaki, and the various Japanese voices were played by Chris Tashima and Esther K. Che. Sound design for this production was by Steve Barker, with remote facilities provided by BBAT Productions. The technical director was Mark Torres. Hiroshima was produced by Artists United, The Feminist Majority, and the Pacifica Radio Archives, and directed by Michael Clark Haney. Executive producers for Artists United, Robert Greenwald and Kate McArdle. Radio producer Brian DeShazer. Music composed by Mark Snow. Mm-hmm. And that does it for this week's From the Vault. We'd like to say a special thank you to Addie Gevins for helping us with this series being preserved and represented to the Pacifica Network listeners. We are now streaming and podcasting online at fromthevaultradio.org. Thanks to all the Pacifica Station listeners who joined our summer school campus campaign and sponsored more schools with the From the Vault series. For more information, call the archives at one 800 735 or visit us online at PacificaRadioArchives.org. From the Vault is presented as part of the Pacifica Radio Archives Preservation and Access Project, which is supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts and past grants from the Grammy Foundation and the American Archive Pilot Project funded by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This program was written and produced by Mark Torres and Brian DeShazer. The series is executive produced by the Pacifica Radio Archives and your host, Brian De chaser. Our theme music is by Kevin Drum Holiday. Thanks for listening.
4: Thank mm-hmm. you. You're listening to KBOO Portland at 90.7 FM and streaming on the web, kboo.fm. I'm Don Jacobson, and moving on, we'll be here in just a few minutes right after the news.